This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue opening the minds to the public to what takes place in reality as opposed to what you think takes place ladies and gentlemen welcome to the justice tech pros podcast here's your host dominic crea hello listeners uh today we're going to once again go over a few topics that have piqued my interest and I wanted to discuss on the podcast. Uh, right now, actually, in New York, we're preparing for another, I wouldn't call it a storm, but we're preparing, preparing for some more snow, uh, which is fine by me. I don't mind the snow. I always liked it, which is a rarity. Most of the people I talk to don't like it. Uh, there are a few who do, but most of them don't. But I always like the four seasons, so... I don't mind the snow. I like when it comes. I like the different changes in weather. So I'm kind of looking forward to it again. Uh, Anyway, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about that I've noticed has been somewhat of a pattern with certain judges that I see play out in different cases. Saw it firsthand, and now I've seen it in cases I've read about, where you, unfortunately you'll get a judge, depending on the defendant, that is, and normally this has to do with, you know, if it's an Italian facing RICO charges, I, I've seen this play out in the courtroom on different levels. And I get into that a little bit. What I mean is you'll get a um, judge who, let's, let's say uh, the defense has put in some paperwork or has brought some things to life in various motions brought some things to light, I mean, in uh, various motions, where they're pointing out uh, falsities or misstatements or things that were inaccurate on the prosecution side or on law enforcement side during the different phases of trial, whether it was inaccuracies being made at bail hearings or potentially at grand jury, which on a federal level you really don't know for sure, but you could surmise based on the discovery matching the indictment. And if the evidence isn't really in discovery, you have to assume that during the grand jury phase, things were said that weren't really accurate because it's not reflected in the discovery. So it would lead you to believe that in order to get the indictment, to secure the indictment, certain things were said that were not consistent with what lines up in the evidence or the discovery. So you'll bring that... You'll put in motions and you'll be able to prove it based on the evidence you were given, based on the discovery you were given, and you lay it all out, you map it all out. And what I notice happens, unfortunately, is you'll go to court, you'll appear with it, you'll present it, and certain judges will then acknowledge it. They'll actually acknowledge that there was a misrepresentation, they'll acknowledge that things aren't accurate, they'll acknowledge that things were said at the bail hearing by the state or by the government, by the prosecution side, that didn't line up to 
what the defense was given discovery-wise or evidence-wise. And on the defense, you would think you're in a good spot. You would think that you've shown certain things that are in your favor, that favor the defense, that gives your defendant a boost as far as positioning to where they're at during the pre-trial phase and that there will be some accountability. And I've spoken about this in past episodes where I've done an episode solely on accountability. But what I'm talking about here is a little a little different and a little more detailed as it relates to specific instances. So I've seen a judge where they, they have this, I don't want to call it a habit, I, I don't know, I don't know if it's for the point of making the record clean or for the point to show possibly to the public or those reading the minutes maybe they're trying to lay it out so it appears that they're being fair they'll give a pretty harsh speech they'll give a strong speech condemning uh, the prosecution or the government or law enforcement depending on who who was uh, uncovered to be not so honest or not so accurate in their claims and in their accusations. And the judge will give words and and issue a a warning and they'll issue a reprimand verbally. But then nothing kind of gets done about it. I notice that's the way it plays out. They'll give these long speeches. They'll use a lot of strong language. They'll say how they're against it. They'll say that it wasn't right. They'll say that it's not the way the court's supposed to work, but yet nothing happens. The Whoever was the one doing such actions gets pretty much a slap on the wrist. They'll have to sit there and endure the harsh talk and, and endure the tongue lashing. But when you boil it down, nothing really happens. It'll be almost dismissed in the sense that it's chalked up to harmless error is, is a word they like to throw around which I beg to differ in a lot of ways, what's considered harmless error, to be making inaccurate statements which causes a defendant to be indicted. For that example, that's far from harmless error. And they'll go on, and that seems to be a bit of a pattern with certain certain judges. And obviously I'm not saying all, I'm just talking about certain ones that I've been reading, certain ones I've experienced, where they'll go on... Uh, a tirade and you think that they're on the right track, you think that you'll get a a small win, you think that what you put in or what has taken place, you'll get a little justice on that front. And what happens is it just kind of gets swept away. It doesn't really mean anything. All the work you put in, everything you put to try to expose what was inaccurate, to to expose what was falsity, misstatements, it just kind of gets... I don't know, just left out there. It's addressed in the sense that the the judge will talk about it, acknowledge it, because they really can't not acknowledge it. You're, you're laying it out in black and white. You're showing different examples of it. You're citing sources of it. So they can't really dismiss it altogether and not even address it. They have to bring it to light and they have to talk about it. But what good is that really when nothing happens? And, and it, to me, it just shows if, if the shoe was on the other foot, I think everybody would agree, if the defense was giving misleading statements, which I'm sure happens time and again, 
But there's consequences for that. The defendant usually pays for that or the attorneys usually pay for that. There's some kind of repercussions for doing something like that. Lately, certain judges, there are no repercussions on the other side. If it's a prosecutor who makes the mistake, those who brought the indictment, nothing really happens. They get a tongue lashing, but what does that really mean? It doesn't really mean much. It's just a matter of being in court that day and maybe getting a little bit of a reprimand. And I'm sure they'll take that. I know the defendant would take that. The defendant wouldn't mind getting a reprimand as long as the decision that is passed down is in their favor. Why wouldn't anybody want to just sit there, get a little bit of a uh, scolding, and then have positive results? But that never plays out on the defendant's side, only on the other side. And I was reading an example of that recently where <clears throat> basically... There was two situations tied to the same case. You had an informant on a case who apparently violated their supervised release in some way or fashion. And they went into court on this specific case. They went into court uh, they, due to violation. Obviously, as we all know, if anybody violates supervised release, they're up for possibly nine out of ten times going back to jail for a certain amount of time, whatever the punishment is for the violation. And the judge acknowledged that the individual, the informant, was in the wrong and apparently uh, committed things that broke the agreement of the supervised release. And the judge did give a good speech as it related to how the law was broken and how things were done incorrectly in and how there was a breach of the supervised release terms. However, when it came time to determining the sentence, the person wasn't put in jail because of apparent underlying conditions and how it relates to the whole COVID situation. So they were they were spared going to jail. Now you get the same judge where a defendant files for a compassionate release on the exact same case, mind you, same judge, same case. The informant on the case, after the case was over, broke the conditions of the supervised release, didn't get any time, was kept out of jail because of COVID. Now you have one of the defendants on the exact same case putting in to be released a little early. And it wasn't much early. I think they have a year and something left to do. So they would have been released about a year early. They put in a compassionate release for legitimate underlying issues. We're talking cancer was one of the issues and a bunch of other health, unfortunate health ailments that are legitimate, that are verified by a doctor. Now, one would think if this judge made these decisions in a fair way, regardless of who was in front of them, they would go by their pattern. And what I mean by that is they, let, they didn't put the informant in jail because of covid and because of these underlying issues, which I don't even think were that serious when you compare them to the defendant I'm talking about. I mean, we're talking about somebody with cancer and somebody with serious issues. So they were spared from going back to jail because of the COVID rationale. Yet the defendant, an Italian charged with RICO, and the informant was also, also an Italian charged with RICO, but the big difference is they were an informant. So they were spared... And unfortunately, the defendant was denied compassionate release. 
so to me, if you just look at that logically, um, anybody, anybody in the public, you're looking at that logically, wouldn't the same conditions apply? So if you're using the same rationale not to put somebody away because of COVID, wouldn't you use the same rationale to then let that person out early because of COVID if they do have these underlying conditions and if they do contract COVID? And I think they already got it once, so if they get it again, it could really be detrimental. It could really, God forbid, who knows what could happen. Wouldn't you think that would that would result in the exact same situation? So the person, the informant wasn't sent away. On the flip side of the coin, that would mean, in my eyes anyway, and I would think in any reasonable thinking person's mind, that the person would be let out under the same the same type of decision-making that was used to not put the informant away in the first place. And to me, that blatantly just shows how it's not fair for all. It's not, you're not treated the same way based on the law, based on the charges. You're talking about two people, they were both charged with RICO, they were both charged in the indictment, and yet one was spared going away who broke supervised release based on underlying conditions. One was kept in jail, not let on compassionate release, based on underlying conditions, more serious underlying conditions. And the only factor that was different when you look at defendant versus informant is one is a defendant and one is an informant. So obviously the the informant was given the benefit of the doubt. Now it is what it is. If that's how you want to rule... You know, I guess that's just the way you rule. But my my issue is it should be the same way across the board. If your thinking is because of COVID and because of underlying conditions, somebody who broke supervised release should not be put in the prison system, then that same train of thought should carry over for the defendant. The defendant's sick. The defendant has serious underlying conditions. Because of COVID, they should be released, especially when there's only a year left on the time. And the informant could face, I think, up to a few years. So we're talking about the same type of logic here as it relates. You have same amount of time, same same situation, same variables. The only thing that's different is one is an informant. And of course, they get the superior treatment. They get the favorable terms. And anybody would see why? Because they're an informant. And I just don't know how one could claim to be fair and giving decisions that are fair when that happens, when that plays out. It's clear as day to anybody, again, with little common sense who's just looking at the facts that it's not playing out fairly, that it is biased and it is one-sided. And you don't really see people raising an eyebrow about that or bringing attention to that or talking about that or writing articles about that. Nobody does the contrast, the compare and contrast about that situation. And I believe if those things were talked about a little more, perhaps judges would keep that in their mind when they are giving these decisions. They'll know the public's watching and they'll see how these decisions are made. Because it's not fair. And I, and I know life isn't fair, so I understand that. But the justice system's supposed to be fair. So that's the problem I have. If we were just talking about a life situation, well, life isn't fair. That's just the way it works. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a controlled environment that man or woman control. 
The judge controls that so they could keep it as fair as possible when making these decisions, and they're just choosing not to. And the reason why they're not choosing to is they're playing favorites. They're playing, you know, they're playing favorites. And I see that as a major problem. And a lot of people don't. And I, I don't know how they can't. That would only show to me that they have their own personal bias. And even though they claim they want a fair system, they want a just system, they really don't. Because if you claim you want that, then you have to understand it needs to play out fair regardless of who the defendant is, regardless of who the accused is. It has to play fair for all parties. And that's not happening. And again, I've seen it in different circumstances. In this most recent one, with the informant violating parole, uh, supervised release, versus a defendant in the exact same case going for compassionate release, and you get two different decisions based on pretty much similar variables where one, the defendant who's in prison had more serious underlying conditions and they didn't get favorable terms. They continue to be remanded in the prison system. And the informant doesn't even have to step foot in there. They could break the law, they could break supervised release, and there's really no repercussions for it. Outside of a good speech... That sounds harsh and sounds like they got a a tongue lashing. But again, what does that mean? I'm sure the defendant would have been all in favor of getting ripped up by the judge in a negative way if they received a compassionate release. I think they would endure the speech to get favorable terms. I think anybody would. And I find that very disturbing because I see it playing out time and again. I've seen it play out in trials. I've seen where... Excuse me. I've seen where the judge will give this really thought out answer, a really strong opinion, and you think you're going to get a favorable decision, and it goes in the completely opposite direction when it comes time to issue an order. It's not in your favor. They they give a great speech where you think it's going to be in your favor, and it sounds like you won. It sounds like you, you brought to light what was going on, what was inaccurate, things that were being accused of, that your defendant was being accused of, were not true, and the evidence did not support that, so you think you have a nice strong argument, and you're going to get a decision in your favor, and it just doesn't turn out that way. And part of me started to think, from the outside looking in, well, what's the purpose of that? What's the purpose of the long speech, and and the, it's almost, I hate to say it, but it's almost like a little bit of a game, where it's coming across... You would think the judge is upset. You would think the judge is turned off. The judge is not in favor of what's taking place. They don't like uh, being lied to. They don't like whatever happened, whatever the situation was. They they aren't a fan of it, put it that way. By, By the words they speak, you would think they're not a fan of it, but yet nothing's done about it. They'll speak in a way that's not favorable to the government, to the prosecutor, to whoever's involved. But when it comes down to issuing the order, there's really no, there's no effect by it. There's nothing that happened where they had to be held accountable for it or favored the defendant because the defendant brought these things to light. Light. It's like nothing really matters on that on that end. And I gotta say, when you see that happen, you really it really takes the wind out of your sail, because when you're hearing them talk on the defense side and you hear. 
the judge does understand what's going on. The judge does see it your way as far as how they're speaking and the train of thought that they're sharing and the logic that they're sharing. You get built up. You think you got a shot because they are understanding what take place. They, they, they're letting you know they're grasping how things were laid out and how it wasn't fair. But yet, when it comes time to make an order on it or a decision on it, it doesn't mean much because nothing happens based on it. You, you don't want emotion. Emotion still gets denied. You don't get any reprieve based on it. And it's like almost worthless. You know, you really start to get, I don't want to say bitter, but you get jaded. You get jaded in the sense that, okay, what more can you do? You show all these things. You show inaccuracies. You show misstatements. You get the great speech. You think you're going to win the motion. You're going to win the ruling. And you, and you lose it. And so I was just trying to understand what would be the rationale behind that. And when you read the minutes and you're reading through it, I personally start to feel it's done almost just so it reads well. So anybody reading it could say, okay, yeah, the judge did analyze it. The judge understood the situation, but they didn't rule accordingly to how they were speaking. And to me, it just doesn't make sense. It makes me think they just want to make the record read a certain way and appear a certain certain way, but the rulings not to follow. So they wanted to read as if they were treating it fair, they were treating the situation fair, but the rulings are not to favor whoever happened to be right in that situation. The speeches will follow that way, and the minutes will follow that way, and the verbiage will make one think, okay, they were analyzing it, they went through the processes, but they didn't get the decision. But when you see that happen time and again, it just goes to show there's somewhat of a shell game going on. And it's uh, it's something I really just wanted to hash out a little bit because I see, I see it playing out time and again, and I think the public needs to pay attention to that. Don't so much go by what was said in the courtroom. Go to what the ruling was. See what the order was. If you see that there was a strong motion and a strong set of facts put into play that should have favored the defendant, see what the what the order or the ruling was. Did they win the motion? Was the motion denied? Because that'll really tell you everything you need to know about who's managing the case and how the judge feels about the defendants and how the judge feels about giving a fair trial. If they're really trying to give a fair trial and give the defendant a shot at justice and going by the law, or are they going by something else? Are they going by personal bias and personal opinions based on their decisions? And I don't think the minutes will show that because if you read the minutes, you'll see a lot of powerful language that will make you think the judge is trying to do things by the book and by the law. You really have to go by the orders and the rulings. That's what you have to take notice of when you're following the case. If you try to follow the case from the beginning to the end, you know, pull the motions, pull everything that was submitted, and just keep track of how that played out. And that'll give you an idea of the judge you're dealing with, if you're dealing with a fair judge, or if you're dealing with one that may not be so fair, may not be one that gives the defense a shot, gives the prosecution a shot, all based on facts and the law. 
not based on personal opinion. The other thing I wanted to just touch on a little bit, there's a movie out. I think it came out in 2019, I believe. It's called Just Mercy. If you get a chance, watch it. It really is a great movie. It's about this lawyer, phenomenal lawyer. His name is Brian Stevenson. And it just shows, without going into too much detail, I don't want to bore you about the movie, but it just shows about a... uh, he was a Harvard Law student, and he became a lawyer, and he went and helped a lot of individuals, and still to this day, the guy's a phenomenal lawyer, helping people who can't afford legal service, and he's helping innocent people that have been wrongfully convicted. And it really just shows what a lot of these cases, what a lot of these people went through, where you have, they were showing this informant, where the informant didn't want to testify against the person who was wrongly accused. He was on tape, and this is based on a true story. He was actually on tape. I don't know if this part was true, but it was in the movie. But the, the informant was on tape saying, this guy didn't do it. Why would I Why would I say he did it? Then you flash forward, the guy testified against him saying, the informant testified, it was a jailhouse informant, testified against him saying he did do it. And then it came out years later when he finally, I think it was 20 years or whatever it took to get this guy off of death row. He was on death row. And the it wound up being the, the informant admitted to lying. He said he lied because the prosecution threatened him that if they, he, they didn't, he didn't say what they wanted him to say, they were going to make his life hell, basically. And it's really just scary. It's a good movie if you watch it because it gives you an idea how some of these departments, some of these prosecution teams, they really don't want to hear the facts. And it's a scary thing. And they gave a, a, a statistic at the end of the movie. For every nine people who have been executed in the U.S., one person on death row, death row has been proven innocent and released. So think about how scary that is. For every nine people, one person's innocent. If that doesn't tell you, that, and that's on death row, so if that doesn't tell you, now if you don't get this guy out in time, well, this girl out in time, they lose their life over being wrongfully convicted. If that doesn't scare some people that there's a problem with this system, I don't know what will. And what was disturbing, in one of the scenes, the the uh, actor playing Brian Stevenson went down to the prosecutor prosecution's office, and he was trying to talk to one of the prosecutors one-on-one as a human being and just basically explain to him he said, you know, I went through the evidence. I just want to share these things with you. There's no way this could have been the defendant. And this prosecutor was so close-minded. He just wanted to de- defend that conviction. And he wouldn't even look at the evidence. He just kept holding on to, well, he was convicted in the, in the courtroom. He was convicted on trial, so I'm standing by that. So I'm going I'm to fight to support that conviction. And the guy gave a, uh, a phenomenal quote. The lawyer told him, your job isn't to defend a conviction. It's to achieve justice. And I thought that spoke very powerfully. And it's the truth. The job is not should not be to defend these convictions. It's supposed to be just to achieve justice. You want to look at the facts. And that gets lost so many times when you read about these wrongful conviction cases. They all have that in common. You get a lot of these prosecutors that they just don't want to hear anything. They don't want to look at the facts. They just want to be closed-minded about it. 
They look at it like a conviction was obtained, and we're going to fight tooth and nail to keep that conviction in play. And that's scary. When somebody has justice and fair and what's right and what the evidence show, when they have that take a back seat to ego, where they just want to keep that conviction, even if it's not their conviction, if it was another prosecutor, but they just want to make sure that department doesn't look as if it made an error, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. And it really is, it's frightening when you think about it. If that takes place today, which it does, in 2021, and all the tools we have, and all, all the systems we have in place, and that still happens based on bias, based on just thinking somebody's guilty. In this movie, they were showing how it was just based on, you know, the guy uh, was an African-American. He was down south. They didn't like him. They didn't like the color of his skin. And that's what they focused on. And you get that in a lot of different ways. You know, you get an Italian. Somebody just doesn't like Italians. They're charged with Rico. That's it. They're going to try to convict them no matter what, regardless of the facts. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. It's really not. And people tend to ignore it. Especially, I notice, especially today, if you are Italian and you are charged with Rico, it real a lot of things shut down. And I've said this in, in past episodes, but I've experienced it directly where you'll you'll try to get organizations to look at the case. You'll try to get organizations to issue an amicus brief just going off the law. And the second they see the charges, the second they hear it's an Italian with Rico charges, they want nothing to do with the case. They don't even want to look at it. Which blows my mind because they'll look at child molestation cases. They'll look at rapist cases. They'll look at all crimes that say I I have a bias against. Say crimes that I think are real low-life crimes. But I'm not them. They're supposed to be the organization that's supposed to be all for justice and all for equality. Aren't they supposed to look at everything with a blind eye and just look at the facts? One would think so, right? But that's, that's not how it works out. That's not how it plays out at all. And that's the reality of it. And if somebody tells you that's not true, they're not living. They haven't lived through it. They haven't seen it and they haven't experienced it. They're either ignorant or they're choosing to deny it. One of the two. And they're both equally as bad. If you're ignorant about it and you don't know any better, you should really look into it before you start speaking about it. Because those are the facts. And it gets very frustrating you keep trying, obviously, but it gets fu- frustrating when a lot of doors that would be open are otherwise closed because people don't want to touch certain cases. They just don't want to touch them. And I think that kind of leads me into my next point I want to make. As I always say, there's, and we're all aware of with social media, there's a lot of different blogs and social media outlets out there and you see a lot of the conversations that take place i have certain ones that are sent to me some some i look at i try to get some background on some i try to see i like to see how what what i almost try to do is i try to study the public around us and i try to study how people interpret different things and how people view topics and when you go into a lot of these organized crime blogs or websites and you see a lot of discussions taking place i read one comment and to me this sums up how a lot 
of the jurors think. And that's why the whole system will collapse a lot of the time, and that's why you do have wrongful convictions. One of the comments was along the lines where they were talking about a case, and they said, it was actually the case I was part of, a case I, I always speak about, about my father's case, and they actually said, along the lines, the case was f- flimsy, but you got to convict anyway, was pretty much the theme of it. So now, <laughs> here you have somebody who's supposed to be let's just say moderate intellect, where they're interacting online, they're on a blog, so they can read and write, so that's got to count for something. And they make a statement that a case is flimsy, but somebody should be convicted anyway. Well, that's basically just throwing out the Constitution. That's throwing out reasonable doubt. That's throwing out, because that's not how it works. You don't go into the jury room and say, okay, guys, we're going to deliberate. We know the case is flimsy. But we're going to convict anyway because this defendant has an alleged title, belongs to some supposed organization, so we're going to convict them anyway. We're not going to go by the facts because it's flimsy, which was a key word that I read, which really took me back. They're admitting the case is flimsy and in the same sentence saying they should convict anyway. And that's why when you think about it, having 12 people judge you is a scary thing and it's not as honest and as just as it sounds, or how it sounds in the books, how it sounds. It's just not, because people come with their mentality, similar to this. They come with that predetermined way of thinking, which says, well, if the case is flimsy, we convict anyway. Well, you're not supposed to, genius, so you obviously don't know how the Constitution works. You don't know how to be a juror, but those are the people who are the jurors. We get a lot of people like that on the jury pool. And that's a major problem, and I always harp on that. And that's really, honestly, that's the whole theme of all these podcasts, and that's the whole reason I think I, I even do it. I just want jurors to start thinking possibly a little differently. I'm, I know I'm not going to connect with everybody. I'm not naive. But if I could get a couple that'll just think a little differently, regardless of their own personal bias, their own personal prejudice that's, that obviously exists when you get comments like this, But if you could get them just to change, if they have a little bit of an open-minded way of looking at things, and they could alter that when they are deliberating, and when they leave, they could go right back to being however they want to be. They want to judge people a certain way. They could go right back to that. But when you're in the courtroom and you're in the jury deliberations, you should leave that at the door. You can't in one breath say you believe in a justice system, you believe in equality, you believe in a fair system, and everybody should be treated equally. You can't say that in one breath and then make statements like that in the other. It's hypocritical, and it just doesn't go. You just can't do that. And you see it time and again, and all I think to myself is that's the jury pool. That's the general public. The general public is part of these blogs. They're reading this stuff online. They're on social media. They're reading these comments. They're absorbing all these things. And then they're reacting with that kind of mentality. What defendant has a shot when that's the kind of mentality? And that's why you hear all, you hear a lot of pleas taking place. When you think about it, if that's the kind of 12 jurors you're going up against... Regardless if you're guilty or innocent, that's a scary thing to to risk. When you're innocent, even 
if you're 100% innocent, you're still risking it. Because if you have somebody who has this type of mentality, and you put it on the defense showing that the case is flimsy, and they still say to convict, based on whatever belief system they have, they just want to convict, not by the facts, not by the strength of the case, just by their own personal beliefs, they're still convicting you, what kind of shot do you have? You don't have any shot. And it's all with the people. I say it all over, I say it time and again. The judge could not be a fair judge. The prosecution could be not fair. All that could be not fair. But the buck stops at the jurors. If the jurors were truly independent thinkers, and they truly were the types to go by the law and go by the facts of the case, the justice system has a shot. Because they could undo any wrongdoings that took place in that courtroom. If they could open their eyes and see unjust rulings, falsehoods taking place, inaccuracies taking place, lying taking place. And when they go into that jury room and they deliberate and they speak up about that and they stand by that and they explain, I have reasonable doubt. Too many things. This case was far too weak for me to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. If they could explain that and stick stick to that, defendants would have a shot for a fair trial. And that's all any defendant asks for. You just want a fair trial. I always say, if you're guilty and you want to fight and you're fighting, it, you just want a fair trial. If you're innocent, you want a fair trial. That's all you want on both sides. You just want a fair trial and you want to be judged for the crimes that you're accused of. Not for anything irrelevant. Not for whether they're trying to make you a bad person or an evil person or say you're not a good person. You want to be judged for the crimes you allegedly committed and nothing else. As the law says you should be. Not judged based on somebody's personal opinion before they even walked into that courtroom. Something they read on a blog or read on a, a website. You don't want to be judged for that. And the more you read these comments and you see the general public's point of view... You start to think, well, how do you make sure you're going to have 12 fair-thinking, rational people in there? You're not. You're just not. It's almost impossible. When you see all these things play out, it's almost impossible. you got to hope that people start to pay attention. People start to understand what their job is. People take their job seriously when they become a juror. Because that's all you want. You just want somebody who's going to go in there, take it seriously, understand what they're there to do, understand they're there to weigh the facts of the case, compare the evidence of the case, not past crimes, not supposed reputations, none of that. Just the facts of the case as it pertains to each defendant in front of them. If they do that, people have a shot. There'd be a big change in wrongful convictions. And I'm not saying it's It's the only piece of the puzzle, but the jurors could control a lot. I understand, as I've said, about if the judge doesn't let certain evidence in and the jury's not going to be aware of certain evidence, I understand how that all impacts, but I still feel strongly that a smart, intelligent juror who's paying attention and sticking by reasonable doubt and seeing through smoke and mirrors, they'll be able to 
see what's taking place, and they'll be able to read through the lines. I have faith that somebody who has an intellect, somebody who is a leader, isn't influenced by other others, who's there to make a decision based on what's put in front of them, I think, I think that could hold a lot of power, and that could prevent a lot of wrongs, and that could create a lot of rights. And, and I believe things such as this podcast, and there's a lot of great podcasts out there along these lines. There's a lot of wrongful conviction podcasts. They're all over the place. You just look it up. And I think people need to listen to all those. They need to hear those stories to really comprehend what takes place and to grasp it. So when they are picked or they are serving on that jury, they take it as serious as it is. And speaking of jurors and reading things and paying attention, I really hope future jurors come across a lot of what's taking place with these modern-day informants, especially informants where it relates to anything tied to, like, organized crime. I hope they come across a lot of their blogs and their social media and, and they're, they're intelligent people because if they just look at what's being written and what's being said, somebody... A child could comprehend that 9 out of 10 of these individuals, the bottom line is it's all about revenge. That's what it's about. It's not about changing who they are. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's not about finding God. It's not about being on a path of righteousness. It's all about revenge. And what I mean by that is when you read the different stories they're talking about, you hear the different stories they're telling You could hear who they didn't like when they were apparently involved in these past lives, how they talk about them, how they abuse them now, how they tell stories to embarrass these people now, how they try to air out their dirty laundry now. It's all about revenge. They're getting revenge. Who knows? Maybe they were abused. Maybe they weren't, they were laughed at, mocked. They weren't taken seriously. They were treated like, I don't know. But there's a reason for that revenge, obviously. Something happened where you could see through and see what their real agenda is. And whoever doesn't see it, they're kidding themselves or they're just, I don't know, maybe their IQ is about three or four because anybody reading it could see it. You read the story after story. You hear the story after story. You read the post after post. It's all about getting revenge on those they think who wronged them. And that's what it's about. Whoever they feel wronged them in one way or another, they're going to get revenge on. They're going to target that person. They're going to talk about that person. They're going to torment that person. They're going to mock that person. They're going to hope to keep mocking that person. They're going to constantly, constantly refer to these individuals. I mean, that's all you see. Stories about certain people being written. Uh, conversations taking places about people being written. You could just tell it's all about revenge. And whoever doesn't see that, I, I think everybody actually sees it. And that's all it's about. They could paint it however they want. You know, they could paint it that it's, no, I'm, I'm changed and I'm trying to do things to better myself. But words speak a lot and actions speak louder than words, I should say. So what you're putting out and what you're making topics of debate and discussion and talking about nauseam over and over again, that's showing what your real agenda is. 
So you could claim one thing all you want, but those aren't the facts. And I just hope they could keep doing that because it's actually great for the defense. It really shows agenda and it shows motive. I mean, that's one advantage that normally defense teams don't have. But nowadays you have a lot. You have a lot of things you could show, a lot of posts, a lot of blogs. You could show a lot of things to these jurors and you could paint the picture of exactly what's taking place. So let them keep talking. Let them keep going. The defense team is smart. They'll just sit back, take it all in. That's all you got to do. Just sit back and take it all in. But I'm hoping on another side, I'm hoping that the jurors are seeing these potential jurors who get picked for maybe upcoming trials or who knows, or similar trials. They keep all these things in mind of what happens to these supposed informants who are telling the truth and what their motives are and what their agendas are. This will really shed the spotlight on that. This will really let people know what they're thinking and what their motives are. They're saying it themselves. I talk about that all the time. Defense, My defense team, that's what you build. If, if I was an attorney, that's all I would tell my defense team to focus on. Building that, showing that. When I got out there and I, and I put on my presentation, you know I'm going to show everything. I'm going to show everything to defend my client. I'm going to show what the true agenda is. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's about getting caught, not wanting to do the time. It's about getting revenge. It's about how do I get revenge on somebody who wronged me? This is how I could do it. That's what it's about. And you have to show that. And hopefully the jurors pay attention to that and realize that and see through that. Because if they're weighing all the facts and they're looking at things at face value and they're taking them from not based on the words that they're seeing being displayed by the person testifying in front of them who's all cleaned up and polished because they rehearsed it time and again, but what the individual does on their off time, what they do when they're not on the stand and they're not performing for the government. That's what the jurors need to be shown. And these new outlets give insight into that. The social media, the podcasts, the blogs, it it opens up that window for the jurors to see it. So it's very important that the attorneys use it properly because they could enlighten a lot of these jurors. And they could pull back that curtain that the government's putting up where they're trying to paint the informant in a specific way or show show them at a certain angle that makes them look like Mother Teresa. So you got to spin them around and show, well, it's really not Mother Teresa. It's somebody looking for revenge. That's what you got to show. The lighting may be so perfect in that courtroom where it's shining bright. You got to dim it a little bit, turn it around. And how do you do that? You show all these things. You put them up on a nice slideshow. You bring out, you print them all out. You offer them as exhibits. You show the different posts, the blogs, the repeated attacks on certain individuals. The need to get revenge. And that's, that's motive more than anything for somebody to become informed, make up lies. Think about it. They want to get back at somebody. They have no other way of doing it. Let's just say in their personal life, they don't have the nerve to do it. They, they don't have the voice to do it. They don't have the backbone to stand up for themselves. So what do they do? 
They think of a way where they could get revenge on somebody and get back at them. And for them, what's a better way of doing that? By lying about people. Working for the government so you have the government backing you up. And you can make up any lie you want and get that revenge that you wanted to get. That's really all it's about. It's not that complex as they try to make it. It's not that deep thought. It's very simplistic. It's extremely elementary. It's the age-old way of somebody trying to get revenge on whoever they felt did them wrong. And as long as the defense shows that, I think it'll I think it'll resonate. And I think it'll shed light on what they would otherwise think is such an impactful and legitimate testimony. I think it'll show that there's a little more to it. It's not as cut and dry as they're being told it is. There's a lot more pieces to that. And when you plug everything in and you show the full picture, you may get that aha moment from the jury. Where they say, ah, I see now. I see now why this guy has become an informant. He's looking for revenge. I got it. He didn't like the way he was treated. He didn't like the way things were going. He felt he should have been whatever, more important than he was. So this is his, his version of revenge. He was dismissed in his regular life. He was a nobody. He was abused, whatever it may be. So now this is their way of getting back at everybody. And that's what the public needs to see. And that's the defense's job. That's the attorney's job and the defense team to give that to the attorney so they could show that and display that. And it's even important on, on, on appeal levels. You start showing that on appeal levels. You start showing what true agenda was. You start showing, inconsistency, showing inconsistencies and inaccuracies. That's when you start making a change. That's when you start making an impact on all different fronts. And hopefully, little by little, people start to get a fair trial. What is always so strong and always so definite in this high conviction rate Maybe you start seeing people getting a fair trial. And you start seeing the, the conviction rate dropping a little bit because there are so many wrongful convictions. So hopefully the public starts seeing through that and seeing through the attempts of a wrongful conviction. That's really all I got for today. I think I said everything I had to say. Until next time, and I hope you enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justice tech till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off